Well, good morning. I hope you have your Bible today as always, because we are going to be continuing through the book of Matthew. And as always, we want you to see it for yourself, to see what it is that God's word tells to us. If you're new here, we have been going through the book of Matthew for over a year now, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we are now in the last week of Jesus's life. And we've heard that the, path, that the, the timeline has now slowed down, going into a lot more detail about what goes on in this last week. And so we find ourselves now in the middle. Jesus is in a long argument or discourse with the religious leaders of the day. And he's in the middle of three parables. He told one last week that we heard about, about two sons. That the first son told the father, I'm not going to obey you and go out and work in the field. And then later he changed his mind and went out and worked in the field like he was supposed to. The second son told his father, I'm going to obey you. But then he didn't obey. And so Jesus's point was that the religious leaders are those that think they're obeying Jesus, but they're not. And the prostitutes and the tax collectors are those that had not been obeying, but now they've changed their mind. They've repented and they are. And so telling the religious leaders, you guys are worse off than the tax collectors and prostitutes. Today, Jesus is going to continue with that same theme of showing the religious leaders how they have failed in their duty. So we are in Matthew chapter 21, and let's look at verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. And this was a common practice back then. If you are a wealthy person, you would buy a parcel of land, build a vineyard on it, and then you would find some people, some farmers, people who knew what they were doing to come take care of it, grow the crop. You would go back to your other house, and then when the crop came, you would go collect a portion of it, and that was your rent that you would collect for them using your farm. So it was a job for them. You made money as a wealthy person. This was a common practice back then. So Jesus tells a story about a guy who built a vineyard, put a lot of work into it, built a wall around it because he wanted to protect it. He put the wine press inside it so it would be protected. He put a watchtower. And so he has put a lot of time, energy, effort, money into this vineyard because he loves it and he cares for it and he wants it to produce good fruit. Now we read this and we think about a vineyard. We think about grapes. But there's something deeper going on here that the religious leaders of Jesus' day would have caught. Because if you look at Isaiah chapter 5, we find a similar story. It says this, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower on it and cut out a wine press as well. And so the story back in Isaiah 5 about another vineyard built with the wine press in it, looking for good fruit. And he explains down in verse 7 what this vineyard is. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. So he makes it very clear that this vineyard that has been specially made dug in a fertile hillside, looking for good fruit, is the nation of Israel. God chose them, God loved them, God blessed them, and God wanted them to produce fruit. 
He says he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And so in Isaiah's day, he was talking about the nation of Israel. They had failed. Their leaders were not leading them right. They were engaged in idol worship. They were engaged in child sacrifice. They had rejected God's law. And so then in Isaiah's day, they were dragged off into exile in Babylon. And so when the religious leaders are hearing Jesus tell this story, they're thinking of Isaiah 5. They're thinking back in the past. Jesus is talking about what happened back then. And that's going to become key as we get a little later because we're going to see that Jesus is not talking about back then. He's talking to them about their day. But this is what they're thinking. Jesus is talking about the past, what happened way back then. So this farmer rents out the vineyard. He sends his servants to collect the fruit that he's owed because it's his vineyard. And look what happens, verse 35. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So this landowner, he sends his servant, say, Hey, collect my rent. Collect what is owed to me. Do me from my vineyard, and the farmers beat and kill and stone these servants. And so the religious leaders, as they hear this, they're again thinking back in the past because the prophet Jeremiah was beaten. The prophet Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, he was killed. The prophet Zechariah was stoned. And so they're hearing that Jesus is talking about what happened back then, how the religious leaders rejected the prophets and so we're punished for that. But notice the patience. He sends the first round of servants. They get attacked, beaten, and killed. So he sends a second round of servants. They get attacked, beaten, and killed. Most of us probably wouldn't have sent the second round, right? We'd have called the police. We'd have dealt with it. But he sends a second round. When that happens, he's even more patient, and he sends his own son. These people are stubborn, right? Is anybody in here stubborn? No? Am I the only one? My dad would tell this story that when I was three or four, I was eating a banana, and when I was done with the banana, I just left it on the table and walked away, like most kids. So he said, James, you got to pick up that banana and throw it away. And so I said what most three or four-year-olds say. I said, no. And he said, James, pick it up. No. James, if you don't pick it up, I'm going to spank you. Nope. Get a spanking. This went on and on and on. Finally, he took the banana, he stuck it in my hand, pulled the trash can over, stuck my hand over the trash can, and said, James, all you have to do is that. And I do this. <laughs> Dump it on the floor. We're stubborn, right? Probably shouldn't brag, but my dad threw the banana away <laughs> in the end. We're stubborn people. We get warnings. We get chances, and we're stubborn. And the Israelites back then were stubborn, but God showed patience. Prophet after prophet after prophet gave them a chance. Finally, he sends the son. And they kill the son. Why? 
because they want the vineyard for themselves. They want the inheritance. They say, if we kill this son, we can have the vineyard for ourselves. And so they do. And so Jesus asked them, verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And now remember the religious leaders Jesus is talking to. They're thinking, this is back in the past. This has already happened. And so they say, well, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. They say he's going to get rid of those tenants. Wretched tenants to a wretched end. He's going to give it to new tenants. So in their mind, God, you rejected those people in the past. Now we're the good people. You're going to give the kingdom to us. That's what they're thinking. That it's their time. They're the good people. But look what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So Jesus now is going to turn this back on them. He says, have you not read, which they had memorized the whole Old Testament, so they had read this. So this is kind of saying, hey, you guys don't understand your own Bibles. He was saying the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the chief stone. Whether, now it's debated what this chief stone is. Some people think it's the first stone you put in the foundation that has to be perfectly square and right so they can measure the building off of it. Some people think it's the top stone in an arch that holds the arch together. Some people think it's the top stone that would hold two corner walls together so they don't fall down. We don't know exactly which one it is, but it doesn't matter which one it is. The point of this is that this is the most important stone in the whole building. And they have rejected that stone. But now it has become the chief cornerstone. And so he tells them bluntly, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So what was their failure? They were not producing fruit. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. But what did we hear a few weeks ago? The court of the Gentiles in the temple was now a bazaar. It was now a flea market, a shopping center. And so the the nations were excluded from worshiping God. Rather than being a light to the nation, they were blocking the nation, the nations from coming. And so he says, the nation will be taken away from you. Those who trip on this stone will be broken into pieces. Those the stone falls on will be crushed. And literally the word there is crushed to powder. So decimated. And he's talking here from Isaiah that Isaiah talks about tripping over the stone. He's talking about the book of Daniel where the king has a vision of a tall statue with a head of gold and chest of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay and a big stone cut without human hands comes and smashes this statue and this statue is a symbol for the the nations of the world. So this stone comes and smashes the nation. Jesus says this is what happened. Judgment comes for those who reject 
the Son. You guys have rejected, so now judgment is coming. It's going to be taken away and given to a new people who will produce the fruit. And so now then, this Israel's duty to be a light to the nations, to tell everyone about God's greatness, to tell everyone about the Messiah, that duty has been taken away from them, and now it has been given to a new people. And that new people is us. It's the church. It's made up of Jews who believe in Jesus. It's made up of non-Jews or Gentiles who believe in Jesus. And so we are a people not marked by ethnicity or geographical boundaries or language or culture. We are a people now united around Jesus. One people with the duty to take the light to the nations. So the Pharisees are mad for obvious reasons. They know he's talking about them. He just said, hey, it's not the people in the past. It's actually the people in the present. It's you guys who are failing. But they don't know what to do. Remember, there's huge crowds here in Jerusalem. It's Passover. There are thousands of people there. The people believe that Jesus is a prophet. If they try to arrest Jesus publicly, there's going to be a riot. And when there's a riot, the Roman soldiers come in. It doesn't go well for anybody. And so they can arrest Jesus publicly, but in the evenings, at night, he's going out to stay in Bethany to spend the night with friends. They can't find him privately. This is where Judas is going to come in, that I can tell you where you can find Jesus privately to arrest him. So they don't know what to do. But I think the biggest question you got to ask is how in the world could they miss that this parable is about them? We read it, and it's so obvious to us, they heard it, and it just went right over their head that he was talking about them. And I think there's two things that they struggled with, that we struggle with, that kept them from seeing that this parable was about them. First off was their pride. I'm better than those people in the past. I don't worship idols. I don't do child sacrifice. I fixed all that. I'm the good guy here. I'm the good guy in the story. He can't be talking about me. And tied with that was their, their religiosity. They were deeply religious people. They had memorized the whole Old Testament. They had on their heads boxes with scripture in there. They did special ceremonies to wash their hands to remain clean. They even tithed their spices. So like you're talking about you're putting salt on your food, they would take 10% of the salt and set it aside for God. That they were deeply religious. We're going to follow every aspect of the law. But the thing that they missed is that all of this Old Testament was to point us to Jesus. The law is to show them and to show us that we cannot live up to God's standard. We fall short. We sin. We disobey. All the sacrifices, all the ceremonies, everything was to point people to the fact that you need a Savior. You need a Messiah. They were supposed to look for the Messiah. Now the Messiah is standing in front of him, and they miss him because they're focused on the religious ceremonies. They missed Jesus. And you know, we look at them— as those in the past, right? We're the good guys now. We're the new tenants that have inherited it, and we're doing the right thing. But you know, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can end up like the Pharisees. Especially if you're like me and you grew up in church your whole life. 
You go through the motions. You're religious. You're a good person, right? I've never killed anybody. I'm a good person. And sometimes we miss our sinful hearts. We miss the gospel. We miss Jesus. Because he here, this is the thing. Religion can be a, a cunning substitute for surrender to Jesus. Religion can be a very effective way of avoiding the authority of God in your life. Because here's what we do. We love Jesus. So we take Jesus and we put him in a box and we put him up there on the shelf. But we put him up there on the shelf next to our love of money, next to our love of self, next to our love of sex or relationships or whatever it is that you struggle with. And we keep Jesus in that box. We do the checklist. Went to church today. Check. Read my Bible this month. Check. Put $10 in the offering plate. I'm good. I even went to small group. And so we come with this sense of religion that I do these things and I earn God's favor. And we keep Jesus in the box because if we let him out, we don't like what he says. You know, he told the one guy, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. If I let Jesus out of this box, he might ask me not just to give money to my church, but to give money to another local ministry that's doing some cool things. If I let Jesus out of the box, he might ask me to leave my small group and go start a new one. I don't want that. If I let Jesus out of the box, he may call me to do stuff that I don't want. And so we, we cling to our religion. We do the religious duties. We come to church. We give. We serve in the nursery. We do what we're supposed to do. And if we're not careful, we miss Jesus. We miss the person behind all those. Everything we do is supposed to point us to Jesus, to look more like Jesus every day in every way. But we come to Jesus saying, I'm better than them. I do all the things and we miss what Jesus is asking us to do. So the Pharisees here, they're angry. They're mad. I get it. Jesus told them you're worse than tax collectors. Jesus told them you're worse than prostitutes. Jesus told them you're murderers. You're rejecting the Messiah. He told them you're like the Romans that are going to get smashed to pieces by a big rock. But he's not done. Jesus is not done, because what he's going to show now in the next parable, that is not just the religious elite, it's not just the leaders that have rejected the Messiah, but it's the entire nation. They have rejected Jesus. And as we look at chapter 22, you're going to see some familiar themes. You're going to see it talks about a son again. You're going to see they're given multiple chances. You're going to see rejection and killing. You're going to see patience. You're going to see judgment. So very similar series of events happens. Let's look at chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. 
The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So again, there's a king. Instead of a landowner, this time it's a king. He prepares a wedding banquet for his son. And he sends out three invitations to the people. Now, the thing you have to understand is we have our culture here. Our culture is very driven by the clock, right? This service started at 10 o'clock. Boom. Everything we do is very much on the clock. We hate it when a flight gets delayed like five minutes, right? Everything is supposed to be on time. We're a very clock-driven culture, whereas many cultures around the world are not. Cultures back then, they didn't have watches. They knew sun up, high noon, sundown. Everything else is just kind of approximate. And so they were not very time-driven. And so if you were invited to a wedding, you would be given a wedding invitation saying, hey, the wedding is going to be on this day or maybe this week, this time period. We'll let you know when it's time to come. And so these people, verse 3, you see, they are people who had been invited to the banquet. So they've received the invitation. They know they're invited to the banquet of the king's son. And then you see the second invitation that he sends the servants to tell them to come. But what's their response? They refuse to come. Not doing it. Not coming to the wedding. So again, we see more patience. He sends more servants. And he says, tell those that have been invited, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. Listen, this was a fancy feast. People back then normally did not have beef. Cows were expensive, and he's slaughtered the oxen. He slaughtered the cattle. And so if you don't want to come to the wedding to honor the king, at least come for a good steak dinner. And so he sends out this invitation This is a slap in the face that the king has asked you to come. You refuse the first time, and now he sends you a second invitation, and look how the people respond. Some just pay no attention, and they go off, one to his field, another to his business. They respond with apathy. I just don't care. So what if there's a wedding going on? I don't care. I've got my business to run got my field to attend to. I'm busy. I have other things. This whole wedding feast, I just don't care. Others respond with antipathy. They're hostile. They seize. They mistreat. They kill the servants. They could have just RSVP'd no. I mean, let's be honest. But they're basically sending a message, stop inviting me to your wedding. I'm not coming. Stop it. They kill the servants rather than come to the wedding. And so what does the king do there at the end of verse 7? He sends his army, destroys the murderers, burns their city. And Jesus is probably here alluding to what's going to happen in AD 70, about 30 to 40 years after this, when the Romans come in, rip Jerusalem down stone by stone, burn it to the ground. Judgment comes for those that reject the Son. Judgment is coming for those who reject the Son. So what's the, what's the king going to do now? Look at verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. 
So go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with gifts. So he tells the servant, hey, everything is ready. Those people I invited, not just that they didn't come, they didn't deserve to come. Maybe your translation says they were not worthy. Here's what he means by this. This is a phrase, it's the Greek word that shows up several times in the book of Matthew. And what it always talks about is how people respond to the invitation, how they respond to the gospel call. When Jesus in chapter 10 sends out the disciples on their first mission trip, he says, go out when you come to a city, share your message. Those that are worthy or those that are deserving, stay at their house. Those that are not, leave. And so he says, those that embrace your message, stay with them. Those that reject it, walk away from them. Later in that same chapter, he says, those that are not willing to leave father, mother, brother, sister, leave their family to follow me, he says, they are not worthy of me. They don't deserve me. If you're not going to respond appropriately to follow me, then you're not worthy. John the Baptist gets in on this. When he's preaching in Matthew 3, the religious leaders, they come and they have this idea that just because I'm Jewish by heritage, by genetics, I automatically get in. And he tells them, no, God can raise up sons of Abraham, is what he calls them. God can raise up sons of Abraham from stones if he wants to. He says, you need to bear fruit that is worthy of repentance. The same word. It's not your heritage that saves you. It's how you respond. Do you repent, change your mind, turn and follow Jesus? And so the king says, these people that I invited, they have not responded. They have rejected the invitation so they're not worthy, so now go and invite someone new. And he tells them to go to the street corners. If you read like the old King James, he calls it the highways and the byways. So this is streets outside the city. The city has been burned, so he says go outside the city to the highways where you're going to find the multitudes of other nations, other people. Invite them to come in to the wedding feast. So the servants go into the street, they gather all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So they go out into the street, and they invite everybody, come to the wedding. People come, and the wedding is filled. Notice he tells them, invite the bad and the good. Invite the bad, those that are immoral, those that are dishonest, those that are not upstanding members of society, those that maybe we don't really like to be around or associate with. But you are never so bad that you can't be invited to the wedding. You're never so bad that you cannot be saved. And so if you're sitting here saying, well, you know, if you knew my past, if you knew the, my thoughts and what I've done, you're invited. If you think I'm not a good person, you're invited. But he also says to invite the good. Because you can't be so good that you don't need to be saved. You are never so good that you don't need the invitation to come. We're invited to the banquet. The question is, are we going to be worthy? Are we going to respond well to the invitation that we are going to come? Or are we going to be those that reject it like the first group of people? But then something interesting happens in verse 11. Because there's an imposter. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man 
there who is not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So he comes in and he noticed a guy that's not dressed properly. Sometimes back then, if you were wealthy, like if you were a king and you were to invite people to your wedding, you would also send them a special garment to wear to the wedding. But even if you weren't sent this garment, there's still standards to show up to someone's party, to show up to their wedding. Typically, it was a plain white robe is what they wanted. And it's the same way today. If you threw a black tie affair, a black tie wedding, and you invite me, and I show up in tank tops and cut off jean shorts and cowboy boots, there's your mental picture of the day. You're welcome. <laughs> if I show up like that, you're going to be kind of upset. That's insulting. I did not follow the directions. I came the way that I wanted to and said, you've got to accept me the way that I am. I'm not going to change. And so you have here a guy who says, I want to be part of the wedding feast. I'm going to be there, but I'm going to come on my own terms. I'm going to come the way that I want to. You know what? I'll come to church and I'll say I'm part of the kingdom. But I'm not letting go of my greed. I'm not letting go of my alcoholism. I'm not letting go of my sexual lifestyle. I want to be part of it. But I'm coming on my own terms. And Jesus, how dare you ask me to change? There are people that claim to belong but they don't have an appropriate change of life. And it's interesting here because the king calls this guy friend. And I think he's being a little sarcastic here because this word friend is the exact same word that Jesus calls Judas when Judas comes to the garden to betray him. What are you doing, friend? Because I think Judas is the picture of this guy. From outward appearances, Judas left his family to follow Jesus. He's one of them that's in. He's a disciple. He's following Jesus. He's living with Jesus, but his heart never changed. And in the end, he was an imposter. And I think many times people come to church. They think they're coming to Christ. I'm in church. I'm doing all the things. I'm part of the banquet. But God, don't you dare ask me to change this about my life. I can wear what I want and still be a part of the wedding. When he confronts the man, he says the man was speechless. Couldn't say anything. He was caught dead to terms. And Jesus talks about this elsewhere in Matthew that at the end of the world, there are going to be people that come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. We did miracles in your name. We are part of the banquet. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. It's possible 
to think you're part of the banquet, but your heart hasn't changed. Your life hasn't changed. You're not truly following Jesus. And like this man, you get cast into the outer darkness with weeping, gnashing of teeth, cast into hell, agony and regret that they did not make the right choice. Well, Jesus finishes this out. He says, many are invited, but few are chosen. Showing us here that in all of this, God is sovereign. God is sovereign in choosing. We're responsible for how we respond, put together. And so as we finish, I have one thought for us and a question. First thing, the thought that we need to be aware of is our task as a church. It's to reach the nations with the gospel. This is where Israel failed. They blocked the nations out. They didn't show the nations the Messiah, the glory of God. Now that assignment has been given to us, God is not done with Israel. There is still a plan. But for now, the assignment has gone to the church to reach people with the gospel. If you hang around with us for the next decade, we're going to finish Matthew, and it's the last verse. It's the last verse. Go into all the world, make disciples. And so we've got to reach the nations. If you read the book of Revelation, God writes letters to the churches. And the letter to the Ephesians, he says, you've lost your first love. If you don't come back to your first love, he actually says, if you don't repent— Come back to your first love. He says, I will remove your lampstand. Your light, that's supposed to be a light in your community, if you do not come back to your first love, Jesus, if you lose sight of your mission, I'll remove your lamp. And did you know that every week, two to three hundred churches close their doors for the last time? They've run out of people. They've run out of money. They've lost sight of the vision to reach their communities. And a guy wrote a book about this. It's called Autopsy of of a Deceased Church, where he looked at many of these churches. And he looked at what are some common threads running through these churches that eventually closed their doors. Here's what he found. These churches refused to look like a changing community. They had few, if any, community-focused ministries. They had no evangelistic emphases. So there's no outward focus, let's reach our community. Instead, they focused on memorials. They idolized the past. They didn't focus on the future. The majority of the budget was spent on their own needs. Some churches had 98% of their budget on me, what I want. They spent their time arguing over what they wanted. There was one church that had a congregational meeting, and they spent two hours arguing over whether or not to buy a vacuum cleaner. And finally, they voted to buy a vacuum cleaner, and they spent another hour arguing over who would be allowed to use the vacuum cleaner. Because apparently, only a special skill set can vacuum. I don't know. But they had lost the outward focus. Finally, these churches had a little focus on prayer. Do you notice the common theme? Inward focused, backward focused. What God did back in the day. Rather than looking outward at our community, how I can reach my community, they were focused on me. 
Rather than looking forward, what's God going to do today and this year and this decade? They were looking 40 years in the past. Do you remember when we had that hot dog supper, how cool that was? They had lost sight of their mission. And they closed their doors. They lost their influence. They lost the light to that neighborhood. And so as a church, we cannot lose that focus. Yes, we need to remember our history and where we've come from. But that's to encourage us and to remind us that God's going to do something this year. God's going to do something next year. And so we look forward with anticipation, with hope. We look at our community. We look at our city. And how can we be a light to them and a light around the world? We have to reach the nations. We have to reach St. Petersburg with the gospel. <clears throat> then finally, the hard part. All right, a little bit of introspection. Just like last week, we looked at the parable, which person are you? We're going to do the same thing again today, but there's more options. Can't choose the king, can't choose the landowner. God claimed dibs on that. Can't claim the son. Jesus took that. But for the other people in the story, which one are you? And I'm going to tell you, your instinct is my instinct to pick the good one. That's me. You nailed me, Jesus. Man, you always figure out who I am. To be like the religious leaders who said Jesus is talking about others, not me. So I encourage you to look at this carefully. Look in your own heart. Which one of these is you? Are you the one who paid no attention, went back to the field to the business? Maybe you're here because a, a spouse, a parent pressured you to come. You sit here and you say, this Jesus is good for you guys. I don't hate him. I don't hate you guys. If you need that, if it makes you a good person, gives you emotional support, I'm fine with that, but I'm good. I've got my job. I've got money. I've got my health. I'm a good person. I just don't need that. Maybe that's you, that you're the person that responds with apathy. I just really don't care about that Jesus stuff. Maybe you respond with a little more antipathy. That sure, you've never stoned a Christian, but in your heart, you may think it's a little dumb. Or the Christians are mean or bigoted and say, that's not for me. You know, Jesus tells us the same thing he told the religious leaders. If you reject the Son, judgment is coming. How do you respond to the Son? And I would beg you, don't reject him. Maybe you're the person who's religious, grew up in church, you do all the things, but you're tripping over Jesus. If you're honest with yourself, you're a little annoyed with Kevin right now because every week you sit here and he puts Jesus out here and you keep tripping over him because who you thought Jesus was isn't who he is. And what Jesus calls you to do is not what you thought. And you're trusting in your religion to get you to heaven. And as a pastor over the years, I've seen this way too many times, asking people, hey, tell me your story. How'd you come to know Jesus? And you get the response, oh, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in this church. I've always been to church. One guy told me, I'm a Christian because I'm a good dad. I love my kids. 
And you see people, religious people, doing the things and don't even realize that like those religious leaders, they are rejecting the Son. Maybe you need to stop trusting in sitting in a chair in here this morning to get you into heaven and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Maybe you're the person coming to Jesus on your own terms. Jesus, I'll follow you. I want to be part of the banquet, but this area of my life, don't you dare talk about that. I can come to you the way I want to come, and you have to accept me. If that's you, you need to repent. Change your mind. Say, Jesus, I come to you on your terms. I surrender to you. I'll live the way you want me to. Finally, the one we all want to be. You're at the banquet on Jesus' terms. You got on the clothes. You're here. You're at the banquet. Things good. I know all of us are going to claim this one. But for us, maybe, maybe you need to get up from the banquet table. Go back out to the street corners and invite somebody in. Maybe you need to step out of your small group to start a new one so that there's room for more people. Maybe you need to go to your neighbor or your coworker. Say, come join me at the table with Jesus. And then finally, maybe you're the servant who's been sent out, who's been beaten, attacked, and you're trying to live for Jesus. You're sharing your faith, and you're a little dejected and discouraged because you've been beaten up. I would just encourage you that you're in good company. They rejected the prophets. They rejected the disciples. People rejected Jesus. People are going to reject us. And so be encouraged that you're in a building full of people that love you and stand with you and stand behind you and want to encourage and support you. So be encouraged by that. But as you look at these people, the temptation is going to be to say, James got her. Man, James, you nailed him. That is so who he is. Don't do that. Look in your own heart. Evaluate yourself. Am I really fully surrendered to Jesus, doing what he asked me to do, even if it's hard? Let's pray.